Hello and welcome to episode 419 of Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. With me, Sean Delaney. I'm a primary teacher and teacher educator, and my book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is now available as an audiobook, as well as in hard copy, published by Routledge. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. You can contact me by email if you write to Inside Education Podcast at yahoo.com. This week on Inside Education, we take a look at the future of education from a policy perspective. Specifically, I am delighted to discuss the topics of sustainability and technology of education with Deirdre Hudson, who is originally from Marino in Dublin and who now works in the European Commission's Department for Education, Youth, Sports and Culture in Brussels. For the past five years, she has been responsible for digital education and was on the team drafting the Commission's Digital Education Action Plan 2021-2027. She also worked with the Commissioner's Joint Research Centre to create the free online selfie tool to help schools review how they are using technology for teaching and learning. Deirdre is currently working on a number of projects related to teacher digital competence and education for sustainable development. Earlier this year, she was a keynote speaker at the annual conference of the Computer Education Society of Ireland, SESI, and that was the stimulus for my inviting her to be on the podcast. You'll really like this week's podcast if you are interested in looking ahead to likely future developments in education, and specifically with how education policy impacts on practice in the European Union. The podcast will be of interest to anyone interested in policy or in sustainability in education. You'll hear too about a tool your school can use to diagnose its readiness for digital education. When I met up with Deirdre Hudson, I began by asking her to tell me about her interest, experience and expertise in education, with specific reference to her work in digital education. I'm based in in Brussels. I'm from um, Dublin, from Reno, actually, um, originally. So I'm working now in Brussels and I'm in the commission for, I must be heading on 20 years now. And I've worked in different departments over the years. I would have started an employment policy, working on um, anti-discrimination equality policies. I moved on to communications. And around, it's probably around seven years ago now, a job came up in the education department and they were looking for someone who could really work on the interface of digital and education. And I had been working more on um, digital government services and how governments were adapting to the digital age. So, and I was getting really interested in kind of organizational change and probably the kind of people part of the technology change, if you know what I mean. So the job really kind of, yeah, no, really sparked my interest. I applied, lovely boss from Monaghan, uh, Dennis Crowley. So listen, I, I landed in the team and I just really felt I'd kind of found my tribe there. You know, I remember the first meeting with the EU countries and discussing, you know, it, we'll talk about it. I'm sure. But, you know, digital education is such a rich topic as well and so many aspects and angles to it. So, yeah, listen, I kind of landed into this, you know, education field and just, you know, loved it so much. I decided to go off and do um, a bit of study, actually, on the side uh, in the so-called kind of free time. So I've just finished a four year degree with the University of Edinburgh um, in digital education which has been a fantastic, fabulous journey there. Happy to kind of share some experience of being a student again. But yeah, tell us a little bit about that course and and maybe then maybe lead into the kind of policy work that that has prepared you for doing in education. Yeah, so listen, I I think I went to a 
it was a, a conference of European universities working in online learning, you know, before everybody had to switch to online learning. And at that conference, I was meeting people from universities. So I suppose you'd call them the kind of learning designers or the learning technologists. And I thought, you know, that's just fabulous to be at the kind of interface of the kind of, you know, the student experience, the kind of, you know, learning experience, throwing technology into the mix there. So I went off and I Googled some courses and I came up with the one in Edinburgh and just the other way I was looking through the different modules thinking, oh, I'd love to do that one. And, you know, learning analytics and course design and gaming and education. So um, I applied and, and I got accepted to the course and it was just a great experience. I mean, you know, there'd be times you were thinking, God, like, you know, why have I taken this on with, you know, the busy job, the three kids? But it was just, you know, in some ways it was wonderful and kind of humbling to be back to be students again actually and you know it was decades since I was out of college so you know things had changed so much even in terms of the resources available it used to be just the journals and you'd go and look up the journal in the college library and now you've got all this kind of you know blog posts and articles anyway so it's a it was a wonderful course and um, we were a mix of students from all over the world so it was the faculty at Edinburgh University in Murray House there who were just an amazing team and us students we were based all over the place you know outside Europe as well we did an Irish primary teacher who's based in Sydney. We had classmates from Canada, Asia. It was just a lovely mix of people coming at it from very different angles. It was a fully online degree. We, you know, never went to Edinburgh per se. I mean, I'm still hoping to go and graduate, but the whole course is designed around online and it would be a very carefully crafted online course. And probably what we had least were live lectures, actually. Um, we had a time zone challenge as well, but there was a load of collaborative work. You know, like they know that learning is a very social thing. So we would have worked together on um, blogging. So we had something called quad uh, blogging where we'd write uh, blog posts and then we critique each other's blog posts. We did um, collaborative essays together as well. Uh, we worked on, you know, video projects, audio projects. And I think they were really kind of upskilling your own kind of di digital skills in a way, you know, in a kind of indirect way. So I suppose I wouldn't have been afraid of technology, but they were really kind of getting you used to it. We'd have tutorials on Twitter, for example. Um, we'd have a lot of asynchronous discussions as well. Discussion forums were a really important part of the course too. So they really were kind of introduced in very kind of innovative ways, sometimes exhausting ways. You'd be, you'd be kind of dreaming of a classic kind of essay that you could submit in a PDF. They were always pushing the boundaries of kind of, you know, do you not want to do a um, multimodal kind of essay? or, you know, do a video summary or audio feedback. It's very kind of engaging and stimulating way to learn, but as a student, very demanding too, because you're very active. You know, you play a very active role as a learner, not just sitting there listening to lectures and taking notes. So different modules um, over the years, we were, you know, exposed to all the different kind of areas of digital from, you know, data use to um, pedagogies to, you know, how we can use gaming and gamification. I did a course on digital policies and strategies, which is maybe a bit kind of geeky, but of course that really was useful to me. So lots of people coming at it from their university, maybe their university had a digital strategy. I was coming at it more as a kind of a policymaker. So that, that was a fantastic course for me as well. So just to be able to reflect, and I suppose you're, you're, you know, as a policy policymaker, you don't always tap into the kind of um, amazing wealth of, of academic resources that are out there because you're kind of time pressed too. So I was getting to know these, you know, amazing um, academics like, you know, Ben Williamson or Neil Selwyn, you know, who write in the field. And I think it really helped me not only as me, the individual kind of going back to learning, but also as a policymaker, I think it helps keep you kind of sharp. And, and you, you know, I think just to tap into that research 
that's out there is is very rewarding because we don't always do that. And as a policymaker, you have to stay very critical. You know, if you're writing a speech for a politician or a briefing, you know, you have to kind of ask yourself the whole time, well, why am I saying that technology can enhance education? What do I mean by that? What is enhancing? So it it stops you from kind of getting into that kind of, you know, the mantras that you trot out the whole time. And I think that kind of critical reflection is really important to that course. And it really helped me as a policymaker as well. And when working in policy, how far down the road are you looking in terms of a vision for digital education? Like, are you looking at, you know, what what digital education is going to be like in the next year? Are you looking in the next five years, the next 10 years? I suppose we're looking kind of at, at all different time frames in a way. Sometimes we're looking back to what's happened as well. And, you know, I think digital technologies, there's a lot of claims, as you know, around it. And so, again, I think that kind of really critical question of, you know, where can it enhance and how can it enhance and what's the context? Because education is so contextual as well. I mean, you know, I'm working really at this kind of very meta level in a way at, you know, at the European level. But of course, so much of it depends on how this technology is playing out in the school with the individual teacher, with the mix of students they have. So it's so contextual. Um, and the timeframes, yeah, I mean, of course, we're looking down the road at the kind of, you know, emerging and the, and the futures as well. But I, I think it's about the kind of daily reality. And, and I suppose about the the planning and how do you kind of plan for technology use because it is such a busy kind of marketplace and there's so many kind of tools out there and resources it can be very overwhelming so I think you know it's not just the kind of futures work we're looking at you know we would have our research department would be looking more at the kind of you know the emerging technologies the AI the virtual reality but I think for us you know we we try and stay grounded in the here and now and what's available and there's lots that's available there's lots that's not available lots of our schools in Europe aren't connected in any way to high-speed reliable broadband that continues to be a challenge. How do you think that digital education is going to change our goals for education and our methods of teaching and learning in, in the future? Yeah how will it how is it you know I think you know we've had this kind of black swan event of, of the pandemic and this kind of massive shift and I think that's, you know, that's very much been a game changer in a way. I mean, there was lots of digital practice happening. There was lots of technology use, um, you know, having worked with the countries over over the last, you know, six years at least, you know, we would have seen some some great examples. But I suppose in a way everything changed when, when you know, the vast majority of schools in Europe had to close because of the public health crisis. And so suddenly we've kind of seen this shift. So that's definitely been a game changer in a way. You know, we had started to write this new digital education action plan you know, we were all set to to adopt, you know, we had our time frame worked out, the, the pandemic happened and we had to just kind of stop because this was just so massive for countries kind of making the, the switch. And and I think it will be a game changer. I don't, I think there's been a kind of an upskilling and it, it hasn't been positive in all senses by any means. That's not what I'm trying to say, but I suppose it's been kind of, you know, this kind of forced innovation. And for the first time, I think digital learning became kind of everybody's business in a way. So it has impacted, it will impact. I think it's all about the kind of, you know, again, I come back to the why of the technology and how the technology can help the learning design and how it can help the teacher in their professional practice. So it's about knowing when not to use technology as well. So it's definitely not a panacea. Um, it's not a silver bullet. You don't just introduce the technology. Education and learning is a very human endeavor and humans are complex as well. I don't believe it's about slotting the technology in and then that becomes the solution. But of course, you know, as 
many teachers are practicing every day, the technology can enhance, you know, it can help them as a French teacher, them as a primary teacher, as a sports teacher. There are ways that the technology can enhance the pedagogy. Um, it can help in administrative ways as well. It can help with communication with families, with students. Um, you know, there's many different ways that we can insert it, but I think it's about knowing what's out there. It's having access to, to it. I think it's about having access to the hardware, the software, high quality resources as well knowing where to find them sometimes is overwhelmed because there's maybe too many resources out there as well so I think it can help in the, in the hands of a of a teaching professional yeah who knows um, and has the kind of confidence and, and competence to know how to how to kind of embed this and slot it in because one of the things that you advocate is 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 schools having digital strategies what might such a strategy look like do you think Ireland is definitely a country where, you know, schools would have would have digital strategies in some countries that really hasn't started. Again, I think the pandemic is putting that on the radar of ministries of education and of schools as well. I think the need to plan. Look, I think it's about, you know, making decisions based on evidence and not just maybe kind of, you know, good feeling or anecdotal kind of feedback. I think any organization needs that, um, whether it's a, an organization in the business of learning or private sector, any public sector organization, you know, we have to listen to our stakeholders and our community. And so I think the, you know, the planned approach can help prioritize. It can help, you know, you don't have to do everything across the board, but you might decide that for this year, your priority is going to be teacher professional development or you're going to decide to maybe have a focus on assessment or a group of teachers will look at digital assessment, for example. So I think the, the planning can just lead to, you know, progress over time. It can be it can help you define your priority areas. It can help you decide on, on spending, purchasing, procurement decisions as well. So I think it can be useful in that sense. And of course, you know, school communities change and they evolve. And so I think it can't just be about the kind of amazing, innovative teacher working alone or with a small group of teachers. It needs to be kind of change across the school as a whole. You know, I think the school as a whole being the unit of change. And I'd be very much um, in favor of obviously involving students as well and student voice and happy to talk about the the kind of diagnostics and planning tool that I helped develop um, selfie oh yeah no I, I'd, I'd like to come back to that in a minute um you've you've mentioned a few times that the pandemic and you know the, the fact that schools were closed and uh, that they started using emergency remote teaching that that's put technology on the radar but you also make the point that emergency remote teaching is not the same as online learning how do you see the difference between those two yeah, I mean, what we saw in the pandemic was an emergency response for the kind of continuity of learning. And that's, you know, a far cry from a very carefully designed online learning kind of experience. You know, it was just a, a scramble. And, a, you know, in fairness, you know, teachers and schools and universities across Europe, they really lent into the challenge, I think. And, and the kind of innovation you saw in the short space of time was phenomenal. And, you know, we've done... Um, some research on this and and you know you have and I saw it in Ireland as well is you had the kind of teacher innovators who really kind of shared their experience and lent in and they were organizing you know ad hoc training or publishing these short videos and you know so where teachers were kind of maybe lacking kind of some kind of central guidance they were just kind of getting on with it and collaborating and sharing experience and that was kind of wonderful to see and you know you had these new partnerships emerging you'd countries where they just didn't have devices you know I mean every country had that issue of the digital divide and so you know you had partnerships emerging with local businesses with NGOs community groups partnering with local libraries um 
you know, to get devices to the to the students, we saw um, broadcasters, you know, RTE and their equivalents, you know, producing producing learning content as well that could be used. So, so I think it's interesting how these new kind of collaboration and and partnerships emerged. Uh, so, kind of tremendous innovation under this pressure. But you know, of course, there was lots of problems. I mean, there were countries that you know would have struggled with you know not just infrastructure it's also kind of teacher digital competence and confidence as well for a lot of schools and systems this was really a kind of first time for them to be using any kind of form of of technology Um, and that was a real struggle you know how do you adapt the pedagogy for online it's extremely different and difficult it involves a whole new skill set from not only the teachers but the students the parents as well that had to be involved especially with younger students so you know, I think it was a challenge really across the board. And I suppose, you know, working with the, the departments of education, the ministries, you know, we could see that investments had kind of paid off in a way, you know, you'd countries, um, I'm thinking of Croatia, for example, that had really done these kind of large scale professional development trainings for teachers in digital. They'd set up digital resource, um, you know, kind of one-stop shops where teachers could go and get curriculum relevant resources. And, you know, and they'd been doing this for years and investments like that, of course, really paid off. It was still a challenge, I think, for everybody, but at least you had somewhere to go to for your for your resources. You know, you had been trained up as a teacher as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think definitely that kind of, you know, planned approach from a kind of systems point of view really, I think, paid off as well. But, you know, it was a struggle, of course, you know, teachers having to juggle their own family responsibilities. You know, I mean, it, it was, you know, I'm not saying it was easy for anybody, but but definitely, you know, countries and systems and schools that had that kind of also the kind of um, I think at schools level the culture in place you know the school culture of of collaboration as well I think that really paid off in this crisis moment. But but still you see a difference to that and online learning more generally would that be right? Yeah I mean I was lucky as a student to experience very well crafted online learning which is a very different pedagogy Uh, like I mentioned before it was very you know it really wasn't about kind of live teaching in a way that's something that we rarely had if we had it we had very different kind of time slots because of the different time zones where we could join that so and of course we were adult learners where you know it's a very different context than teaching in primary school for example but what I really loved about it was the kind of collaboration that was built into that and the fact that as learners that we really played a kind of active role and we really it was almost as if our kind of teachers almost step back and let us get on with it as students in a way yeah I mean I think online when you know, when it's designed well can be fantastic, but it's a whole craft to design that online. You need a whole kind of skill set to know about the kind of pedagogies of, of online, um, you know, and, and I think it's it's a far cry from kind of hours and hours of live teaching to a very large group and very little kind of student engagement and involvement as well. So, yeah, I would I would see it as, as different. This was an emergency response in a, in a crisis. But I suppose the challenge and the opportunity is what can we take away from this period in a way, you know, a lot of people are talking about building back better, but, you know, I think we do have an opportunity as well. I mean, it's it's been a, a terrible and a, and a difficult time, but can we look and see at the unit of, of the school, at the unit of, you know, the country as well, the system, you know, what, what is it that we learned during this period that we can help, you know, to make learning more inclusive and engaging and, and relevant? And how would you answer that question yourself initially? Oh, listen, yeah, that, that, that's a difficult question. Um, you know, I think going back to the collaboration, the partnerships, I think it probably kind of redefined learning and where learning can take place in a way. Maybe it broke down the walls of the classroom as well. There was maybe a, a recognition of maybe different players um, in this kind of learning ecosystem, if you know, if you know what I mean. And 
you know, maybe a school could continue to have that partnership with a local library that maybe started in the in the pandemic. Maybe we could work more with the museums. Um, you know, I think it was interesting to see a lot of those kind of workshops that would have taken place in person shift to online, even things like makerspace workshops or even kind of virtual visits to, I'm thinking of the dream space in, in Dublin as well, the Microsoft dream space. Until the pandemic, we would have had to physically bus people to these to these centers for those opportunities. But if we can somehow kind of shift that to online, and of course that needs to be well designed, but maybe we can open those opportunities to learners that maybe aren't based in urban centers or would be find it more difficult to be to be bussed into these workshops. So I think there are opportunities to kind of link the formal and the non-formal and to kind of think about these collaborations and partnerships. And then, you know, with the use of technologies as well, what was it that helped us? What was it that that worked well? Maybe we shifted to a learning management system. Was that useful? What is it that the students would like to keep from that? I think there was lots of good examples of um, communication with families and, and parents as well, and maybe new forms of parental engagement. And, you know, what can we keep from this period. So I, th I think lots of opportunities. There's definitely a momentum there, uh, I think, to, for, for improvement and this building back better. You mentioned briefly the selfie tool that you developed. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Selfie started life really as a piece of work we did with our research department. We designed a, a framework of what it means to be a digitally competent or, or digitally ready education organization or institution. So it was really across the board from early years education right up to adult learning. So, you know, it's really this holistic approach. We've touched on it a little bit. So, you know, that you need to look at the leadership and vision. You need to look at infrastructure as well teacher digital competences, your student digital skills. So it's really looking at technology use kind of across the board. So this was a framework that we developed. You know, we have a network of all the departments of education. So we would have been, you know, discussing early versions with them. And so we published this framework in 2000, end of 2015. And with our discussions with the countries, they were saying, well, look, could we take this framework and really turn it into something very practical that could be used by the, by the institution? So you know, it was a, a challenge and we decided to go with it, but we would start with schools. We weren't confident that we could design a tool that would really meet the needs of the university, the, you know, the early years, the teacher training colleges. So, you know, we decided we'd, we'd really focus on the school, focusing on the primary and secondary school. So, yeah, look, it was just, you know, there was huge enthusiasm for the countries. We decided to do a very small pilot and our idea was to pilot in, in four countries, but actually we'd so many volunteer countries, we ended up piloting in 14 countries and we launched this tool three years ago. So essentially what it is, is it's a diagnostics or a planning tool that any school anywhere, actually anywhere in the world can use to help them with their digital planning. So it takes in the views of teachers, of students and the school leadership team as well by answering each of these groups answers a series of reflective statements and questions on how technology is used in different areas of the, of the school life. It's customizable. So we knew when we started off with the, the team I was working with in the research department, we wanted it to be a very modular tool because, you know, of course, every school context is different. So Selfie has a set of core questions. You can drag and drop in some optional questions and you can actually add your own questions. And that's a nice feature for a school. You know, maybe when they look at the questions, they feel there's not enough there on, I don't know, internet safety or they want an extra you know, question on coding, for example. So it's it's a highly modular tool. So you you set it up, of course, because it will look different depending on your school context. And then you you uh, work with your teachers and students to answer these reflective statements. It takes around 20 minutes, 25 minutes to complete. And at the end of all of that, you get an automated report 
where you see the strengths, the weaknesses, what's working well. You can see gaps, actually, which is interesting. So maybe, you know, the teaching staff aren't happy with the infrastructure. Maybe the school leadership team thinks it's okay. You know, so you can start to see the kind of gaps in in perception. And from that, of course, it helps you prioritize and and to plan. So I think it can just help you in that kind of planning stage. And then, of course, to monitor progress, because you can run your selfie, uh, of course, you know, year on year or a couple of times a year. and, And it can help improve and inform your digital strategy, your digital planning, for example. So that's the the, t- the tool that we developed three years ago. It's been used now by a million and a half users um, around the world. Uh, we have 34 language versions. So it's, it's really grown, I think, with the pandemic as well as a new focus on, on digital planning. So I think that the numbers will grow. So it's been yeah. a great project to be involved in. And is it an app or is it a web-based? Uh, it's web-based. It's web-based. Absolutely. It's web-based. So you need a small team or one person within the school to set it up, of course. You know, you need to decide, well, what are those extra questions I want to add or which are the optional ones I want to drag and drop in? You need to decide what time suits you to run it, maybe in your school. I don't know, you want to work around your exams or in a normal year school trips or, you know, um, you decide who's going to answer it. We give some guidelines on, you know, the number of, of teachers or, or students, obviously, depending on the, the size of the school. It's all anonymized data as well. So, you know, the students and, and teachers can answer in confidence, knowing that it won't be linked to their name as well. So, yeah, look, it's from a very pilot project. It's really taken off and we've had, you know, huge interest from a lot of the departments of education as well that really see it fitting into their national strategies as well. So. A lot of them would have organized, you know, PD around using Selfie. The Spanish have developed a MOOC to help the schools on, on using Selfie and using the results of Selfie. Of course, Selfie isn't the end of the story. It gives you your insights and then you have to obviously act on that. So, yeah, that was three years ago. And we're building a new tool um, actually on teacher digital competence, so-called Selfie for, for teachers. So I'm, I'm busy working on that at the moment. It's a fantastic project. And interesting to be back to kind of the design phase as well. So that will really allow teachers, so an individual teacher or a group of teachers, to deep dive on their digital skills. So it's a self-reflection exercise. Again, you know, takes around 25 minutes or so for the teachers to answer. They answer in different areas. So maybe on digital resources, on um, how they support student digital skills, how they use technology for their own professional development. So there's around 30, just over 30 reflect of statements in there and then the teachers at the end of all of this get their report so it's again an automated report where they can see where they're at in terms of being a beginner or maybe an innovator in these different areas and you know we're not saying for a second that everybody should be an innovator in every area I think it's about a kind of your own learning journey and kind of you know your own kind of improvement to maybe thinking, okay, well, I'm really, you know, I do well in that area, but I could do it maybe, you know, invest in a bit of time and learning about this area. So, you know, we hope that at the end of it, that the teachers will feel, you know, motivated to continue their own professional learning. They've got some results and insights. Again, they can take that year on year if they want to see improvements. They can also, what's interesting is it's it's a tool for the individual, but also for a group of teachers working together. So we're designing a, a feature where maybe, you know, in a larger school, the, the math teachers might want to work together or even a community of practice, teacher education faculty as well. So, you know, the use cases are, are you know, very broad in this new tool um, that, we're, that we're designing. So very much me as an individual teacher, but also me 
within my community as well, my community of practice within my school, maybe the teaching staff as a whole within a school. So we're at the design phase and we've actually uh, done a test drive in Ireland, which has been fantastic. So great to join a focus group of Irish teachers to see how they feel about this very pilot version that we have. And the idea is we launch at the start of October in all EU languages and there'll be a Gwelga version as well. Very good. And the data that people put into Selfie, that's collected centrally rather than at local school level. Is that right? So the data they put in is collected at school level. So that report that's generated only belongs to the school and only the school can see that. That's only shared if a school chooses to share. And same with the teacher's tool, it will be the same. The teacher answers those reflective statements. Now, the data is collected centrally. And for the teacher's tool, the teachers opt in. They opt in to allow their anonymized aggregated data to be shared within their group. Now, that group might be at the level of a school. It might be at the level of a community of practice across the country. It could be a group of e-twinner teachers. So that group could look at different forms. So the teachers opt in to share that. We haven't used the data for research purposes. So Selfie for Schools has been running for three years. We feel that we could do more to use that data, but it will always be the anonymized and aggregated data. First and foremost, this is a tool for the schools. Their report is never shared. That's fully anonymized. We've worked with Spain. So Spain is an interesting example that they have actually worked with a representative sample of schools across Spain to be able to use the anonymized aggregated data for policy purposes. Because of course, unless it's a representative sample of schools, then how would you know? Maybe it's only your urban schools, maybe it's only your large schools. So to kind of draw policy inferences from that would be difficult, I think. But Spain was the first country that we worked with to really have a sample of schools across the country. And they launched their report a few months back, which is very interesting for them because they can really see you know, where they need to invest as a ministry in terms of infrastructure and PD. So that is a possibility as well. Spain has been the first country to do that. When you work on a a vision for digital learning in Europe, one of the things you probably do, and I'm presuming here, is that you look at school systems or education systems that have managed to do it well or, you know, who have nailed the digital integration for now, I mean, because that can always change. Who at the moment do you think has done a good job or who would you be looking to as a model school system for innovation in, in digital technologies? Sure, it's a good question. And, you know, I suppose what we don't do is any kind of ranking or, you know, we're not in the business of kind of saying that they're doing great or less well. And because the context is so different, education systems are organized so differently. And then it's about the unit of the school as well and what's happening on the ground you know it's maybe a you know I'm not trying to give you a a diplomatic answer about it but you know I think it's so contextualized and I've seen amazing examples I mean I was lucky you know pre-pandemic to travel to a lot of schools around Europe with this network that I run and you know you just see amazing innovations across the board I've been in classrooms in Austria or in Slovenia and Finland, for example, you know, you you see, I think, fantastic examples and countries really learn from each other. So uh, Greece had a fantastic robotics competition that they were doing, kind of bringing in non-formal and formal education, which inspired other countries. Portugal as well is doing some wonderful stuff again about bringing in, you know, the non-formal sector as well and how that can help kind of innovate as well within the school. So, you know, there's there's a borrowing and a kind of policy borrowing going on across the board. 
Uh, if I think back to my visit to Finland, and Finland is often quoted as, as you know, a system that's high performing in terms of education quality. But I'll always remember going to the school outside Helsinki and the students met us at the door to interview us. So we were like, you know, this group of adults from all these different countries. And it was the 15 year olds that met us at the door with their iPad and they were interviewing us. So it really kind of turned the tables and they were saying, well, why are you here? Or what do you think you can learn from, from Finland? And then we were brought down the corridor to be interviewed for the podcast. So the 11 year olds run the school podcast. So I love the fact that that was turned into a learning opportunity for the children. They were just introducing computational thinking on the curriculum and we joined a class and that was lovely to see. It was a mixed age group class. So it was teams of teachers working together and the, the subject was handicrafts actually. So we were in the handicrafts period and they were doing, um, so the, the kids were working together on programming. They had like little Lego robots and they had a huge map of um, Finland on the floor and they had to program the robots to travel from Helsinki up to Lapland. Uh, so all the furniture was moved back. So just kind of chatting to the teachers there, you know, I was saying, listen, how's it going? You know, you've got this new computational thinking on the curriculum. The teachers were saying, well, look, you know, we felt involved. You know, we were consulted on the design of the new curriculum and we felt that our voice was kind of heard in this redesign. It's really helping us to work together as a team of teachers on this. You know, they were very excited that they have this phenomenon based learning as well. And as a school, they decide on a topic that they'll work together cross curricular. So they were also introducing computational thinking into that. And the school we were visiting had decided on time so time as a phenomenon. So through history and dance and music and coding, they were going to look at time. So there was great excitement that there was phenomenon-based learning, but as a school, they could decide as a school community what they were, were going to focus on. So you, when you're having those conversations, you're kind of thinking there's so much happening here. That's great. It's the autonomy for the schools. It's the involvement of the teachers, the empowerment. They feel supported. There's collaboration. That experience, I suppose, will, will stay with me. And having these kids around us kind of turning the tables on us saying, well, why are you here? What is it about Finland? Tell us, well, how does it happen in your countries? So even to turn a, a visit into a learning experience for them was, was really interesting. But, you know, I think there's tremendous innovation across the board and just, you know, great energy from teachers doing phenomenal things. Um, and I suppose that's really what inspires me in my work. If we can somehow facilitate that and kind of, you know, get those people together to share experiences. And you mentioned Austria and Slovenia. Was there anything memorable from what you saw there? Uh, Austria was lovely. It was a, a school um, in the centre of Vienna and they were just brilliant. The kids stayed back after school to show us the kind of digital artefacts that they'd built to help us with their with their learning. And a lot of these kids would have come from migrant families. They'd recently arrived in Austria. And it was just, it was really just, I suppose, kind of moving in a way. So the kids were demonstrating. I remember talking to some girls and they'd built a little program to help them with their English vocabulary. You know, um, so it was a game basically that they'd built. And there were some boys who'd been using, um, it was a kind of augmented reality in biology class that they were showing us with, with the iPads. And it wasn't a school with a lot of money at all, but they'd worked together with the local community. They got sponsorship and the school leader was amazing. And he was saying it's really changed the kind of culture of the school as well. And he said, you know, the teachers really want to come and work in the school and, the, you know, the parents really want to send their kids to the school. And he was saying a lot of them, a lot of these kids, it was a school that had the kids up to the age of 14. And he said a lot of them would go on to the vocational track. So Austria, like Germany, you'd have a lot of vocational schools um, after about the age of 14, 15. So he said, you know, we feel that we're improving their digital skills and this will really help them when they go down the vocational track where digital is needed across the board in all sectors of our of our economy so you know i really heard from him that it wasn't just this great kind of you know 
the energy in the room of these kids kind of who've you know had used digital to help them with their learning they'd kind of set up this marketplace in a classroom when we were going from desk to desk and you know they were showing us all the, these things that they designed and um, you know that in itself was amazing but to kind of hear the school had say and we're getting them ready for you know the vocational track that many of them will be going on to in a couple of years when they leave our school that was that was really memorable as well I think and the pride of the kids you know it's just wonderful. So when you talk, talk about creating artifacts, like they, they really are programming and coding these yep. students. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I was chatting to a group of girls as well, and they'd been involved in a, I think it was a Lego programming competition as well. And so, you know, bringing in the kind of non-formal and the extracurricular activities as well. So, yeah, it was all, it was about digital creativity as well and building and, you know, hands-on making with digital which I think is wonderful and it gets kids to kind of look under the hood of technology otherwise it's these sealed units of the mobile phone and the kind of black box of the algorithms and you know so I think if we can have that kind of hands-on learning with technology that can help demystify this world that's actually shaping so much of our everyday life and is impacting on decisions that are made for us and about us as well so I think that hands-on element is is really critical. Another area for which you have responsibility is sustainability. When the term sustainability is used in relation to digital technologies, what does it mean? That's a, a new area I'm I'm getting into now, and I, I'm kind of leading on a on a policy initiative with a group of colleagues on um, education for the green transition. So that's you know, Europe is being very much impacted. We've talked a lot about digital transformation, but of course, as we move to kind of a cleaner and greener Europe, we have an ambition to be carbon neutral by 2050 in the EU so how does that impact on education and of course coming from the digital world I think a lot about the kind of interface between the two in a way and I think it's about you know if we look at sustainability competences and the kind of competences we'll need to move to a more kind of sustainable future I think some of those competences technology can help us in a way I think um, and that goes back to the innovative pedagogies the hands-on learning making learning relevant so is it a group of students that identify a local issue, an, an environmental project, an environmental problem in their local community, and they design a solution using technology to solve that problem? We see that playing out in the new Leaving Cert Computer Science curriculum in Ireland. So I think technology can be a kind of force for helping learning around sustainability and environmental issues. You know, it's not just awareness raising and adding on you know, learning about the environment, but it's how to really engage the students in um, kind of learning for sustainability, I think. So it's it's not just a topic, you know, this will impact deeply on how we live and how we work, like digital, you know, moving to a more, to a greener economy will, will impact jobs across the board. So I think in terms of the kind of, you know, potential of harnessing the technology for the more innovative and engaging ways to learn about sustainability, I think that's a it definitely has a role there. I think the environmental impact of technology is another issue. Uh, we need to think about the footprint, the ecological kind of footprint of using all these technology and data hungry servers and replacing mobile phones. And, you know, what is the impact there? So I think we need to look at green technologies as well. I think that's that's also interesting. But I, yeah, I, I see the intersection really, they're both in the space of kind of innovative and, and relevant kind of learning as well. And, and the dig digital transformation and the green transition are really impacting on all areas of life and education training isn't immune to that. It also needs to adapt as well. Um, and that's about adapting how we learn and what we learn, but it's also about 
as organizations, you know, our own environmental footprint as a university or as a school. Um, so I think it's kind of infused um, across the board, maybe it goes back to the whole institution planning as well. We need to do that for sustainability. Because one of the goals for the one of the sustainable development goals from the United Nations is to ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. So I suppose a question for you then is, can digital technologies contribute to the achievement of that goal? I think it has to. I think digital technologies can be a great force of inclusion and exclusion. You know, we've really seen that during the pandemic as well. Not all students could access that emergency remote learning. They didn't have the devices. They didn't have the reliable connectivity, especially in our rural areas in Europe. Today, we're talking about Europe. But if we look at around the world, how many students were excluded from that? So digital can very much exclude, depending on how it's designed. It can include or exclude. I mean, I'm thinking of accessibility. We need to design things from from scratch that they're accessible to all our students. I think that's about students with special educational needs as well. I think it's, yeah, it has to be inclusive, otherwise we shouldn't be using them. I think they have to be a force of, of inclusion. Um, so I think that's about the products, how they're designed. I would like to see products being designed by teachers, so having teachers involved. I'd like to see students being involved. I don't think digital educational pro, uh, digital um, products for education shouldn't be designed for business and then foisted on education. I think they need to be designed with educational needs in mind. So, yeah, I, I'm yeah, I, I'd very much like to see that going forward as well. So, you know, you need to build the inclusiveness as part of the design of, of the products as well. So it, it is about the design. I think it's about access as well. I think it's about the skills because it's not just having the technology. It's how I use it. Am I, am I safe online? What's happening? My data as well. Can I use these technologies in a responsible way? So, yeah, I think they can be a force of inclusion, but we're not there yet. I think we need to keep that up front. Um, yeah. And do you see any threats of digital technologies for people and education, you know, things like artificial intelligence or, you know, other aspects of it? Yeah, I think there's definitely, I mean, there's opportunities and there's also risks and challenges um, as well. I think we just mentioned there around kind of ethics and data privacy. I think that's something we really should have an eye to. Um, and we're just actually in the process of setting up an expert group to look at exactly that, um, the ethics of AI in education. I think that's really critical as well, because, you know, these products generate data uh, and what happens at data, what decisions are being made based on that data. I think the teacher agency is important here and the student agency. Um, you know, does, does the teacher understand what's being generated and how they could potentially use it? Uh, so, yeah, I think it does. You know, I think we, we should always keep an eye to it. Um, and I think Europe as, as a region, it's something that we do. We are concerned about data privacy. Um, and I think that plays out in education as it does for, you know, consumer products as well. I think we should definitely keep an eye. So, look, it's it's got risks. Um, I think, um, you know, I'll, do, I'll put in the show notes a report that we did recently on uh, AI and education and the kind of potential benefits it has, but also also the risks. And, you know, if AI works well, working with the teacher, you can maybe alleviate more of the kind of routine activities as well, you know, whether it comes to marking or instant feedback on student progress. I mean, there are things that these automated systems can help on and that can free the teacher up ideally to do more of the kind of high value human stuff, which is the coaching and the mentoring. And, you know, a robot isn't able to do that. And I think it will be a long time before they can because they don't have mentoring, um, empathy uh, or mentoring kind of qualities as well. So I think we need to kind of stay fixed on what we as humans want to do and what we can do and where we can add value to the learning experience and where the 
automated system and, and the robots can kind of, you know, take over more of the mundane stuff. But, you know, that's even a, a kind of, a, I think, a, a critical kind of area of what does it mean by the mundane or the routine tasks. And I'd really recommend Neil Selwyn's short book on that, um, which is um, Should Robots Replace Teachers? Uh, that was a short read, but absolutely brilliant, uh, where he really unpacks some of those terms by, you know, well, what is a routine activity? And maybe by marking essays, I get to know a student's style or I can spot if there's differences in, you know, so should we have robot essay marking? So so I think we need to be careful when we say these things, but I think there there is potential there. But I think we should be very aware of the products that are being built and, you know, where that data is going and who's benefiting from that data. In that answer, you kind of touched on the answer to the next question I was going to ask you, but I'd like to ask you a little bit about, I'd like to ask you about it anyway, in case there's some more you would want to add. And that is, what does it mean to be a teacher in the digital age? Or I suppose, how do you think the role of the teacher is going to change? And I mean, you've talked about getting rid of some of the mundane work and, you know, the empathy that a teacher can bring, but are there other dimensions of a teacher's role that you think will will change given the place of digital technologies now? For me, digital technology is is a tool for the contemporary teacher. And and I think whatever the context, whatever your discipline or or where you're teaching, I'd like to think that all teachers have the kind of confidence and competence to know when and when not to use technology. You know, we know from the research that we've done pre-pandemic that teachers were looking for more professional development opportunities across the board on, on technology use. So I think it should be embedded into initial teacher education. I think we should be getting our future teachers ready as well. And that's, you know, I'll, I go back to our uh, framework that we've developed on, on teacher digital competence as well. Um, and that means, you know, for my own professional practice, how I embedded in teaching and learning, how I use technology to, to collaborate with colleagues, to communicate with students and with families as well. So I think there's different kind of dimensions to that. And, and it's also about, knowing those, you know, risks and challenges as well around, you know, privacy and GDPR and all those aspects. So I think when we say digital competences, there's there's quite a bit in that. And, and it's an evolving and ongoing thing as technology changes as well. So like I said, I don't think it's about being by any means a kind of an innovator across the board, but I think it's, you know, having the opportunity to learn about these and, and to have the quality professional development opportunities to be able to collaborate within the school, collaborate with different schools on this as well. So I think that's that's important just to give teachers the, the opportunities as well. One of the challenges that we had in Ireland with the pandemic was the holding of the leaving certificate and you know post-primary examinations. How did different countries across Europe, or to what extent do you know how different countries across Europe you know, manage that that challenge? Yeah, I mean, assessment was a challenge across the board. I mean, Leaving Service is a high stakes assessment at the end of formal education. Not all countries have that as well. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a, a common challenge, I'd say, across the board. In many cases, exams were cancelled. It was similar to Ireland. It was more about the kind of teacher assessment as well. So, yeah, I mean, there were there were different different systems, but not all countries have such a, you know, a high stakes leaving cert kind of equivalent as well. So different different approaches for different countries. But I would say assessment would be one of the number one, you know, because also you've got higher education kind of waiting for, you know, there's so many stakeholders in this assessment because that feeds in then to your tertiary level intake as well. So, so yeah, it was definitely, so you had a different mix of postponement and then, you know, some countries hold those exams over the last two years. So they would have taken the results from the previous year 
into account. So yeah, very, very different responses, but definitely a major challenge. And of course, it gets people rethinking and discussions in media, you know, not only in Ireland about these exams and whether it's an opportunity to rethink the exam system and all of that is played out across the board as well. We're coming near the end, Deirdre. So I just want to ask you some general questions that I put to every guest on the on the programme. And the first one is, what is school for or what are schools for? I think it's about opportunities for students. It's about allowing the student to, to flourish. I think learning takes place in lots of different places, not just the school. If I think of learning in school, I suppose it's getting the kids curious and, and passionate and engaged and excited and I think it's about their well-being as well it's about their learning but it's also their well-being and maybe with the pandemic there's even a renewed focus on that as well the importance of, of school of this shared space of, it's a site of learning but it's a site of community as well um, yeah so definitely the well-being learning opportunity flourishing they're words that come into my head when you ask that is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you Plenty of them, I think. Um, I was definitely shaped, um, if I think back to my own secondary education in Clontarf. I was in Holy Faith Clontarf and I just have really happy memories, actually, in my six years there. And I had a wonderful geography teacher, Miss Riley, who kind of traveled the world before people traveled the world in a way. And Miss Riley would bring back stories from she'd been to Iceland when nobody went to Iceland. And I think geography for me and sometimes, you know, pre-pandemic when you'd be traveling around Europe I'd remember stuff from Miss Riley's class you know you'd be in a plane you'd look down you're like I remember learning about the mining industry in Finland or you know geography of Spain or you know so I think she really gave me a curiosity to kind of explore what was off the island and you know I left Ireland for the first time I suppose I was 16 when I went on a school exchange and my, my language teachers were amazing in Holy Faith. I had a phenomenal uh, French, I did a number of amazing French teachers. My German teacher was amazing. And I think that really gave me a love of languages. So I think if you combine the geography with the languages, it probably explains why I'm here now in a way. And I, and I have such fond memories of, of the kind of project work we did in Holy Faith. We had a project evening every year called Visions. And it was just really exciting because we would have worked on posters or there was essay competitions and for some you know the feeling in the school that evening when all the parents were there and there was a buzz and in the German room I think we had like mulled wine for the parents and I look back with such happy memories of that and that was all off the curricula curriculum stuff I suppose in a way and I have really fond memories of you know being in the school hockey team as well and going to see different schools around Dublin and we were lucky enough to be involved in different projects with the Alliance Francaise as well in town so yeah, I think I've, I've really happy memories. And, you know, I'm the first person in my family to go to university. And I think it was conversations I had with teachers in Holy Faith that probably put me on that path because it was pre-internet days and I wouldn't have had access to the knowledge of, you know, I didn't really know what was available out there, I you know, in terms of university courses. So I think Holy Faith really shaped me as well. And conversations I would have had with career guidance counsellors there it kind of put me on the the path to kind of you know further education and learning um I did a degree in Trinity in European studies which really brought the kind of my love of languages with you know the history the politics the geography part as well so it definitely shaped me as a school and I had a really happy six years there. And to what extent do you use your languages in your current work or how you know how much of it is through the medium of English? I'd say more and more of it's through English. Probably when I arrived first in the commission, we'd have a lot of our meetings in French as well. I mean, I use French every day. Depending on the colleague you're talking to, you'd be chatting away in French. Yeah, I'm I'm lucky. I've since coming to Brussels, I've learned um Spanish and Dutch as well. And I have um 
German from school, so I, I do. I'm a bit of a languages geek, and I was lucky that Holy Faith offered both French and German, actually, as well. I think that was a bit unusual at the time, so I took French and German right up to leaving cert and, and kept both of them on in college. So I'm really passionate about languages, and I've just gone back to learn in Irish as well. Um, University of Limerick were offering their Irish online, so that's been a really nice opportunity to go back with adult learners and kind of dust down the Irish after all these years. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, and, and it always helps in work, even if you're just chatting to people, because I work with all the different countries and you might just pass the time of day with them and then you get on to more of the business stuff in English. I find it really enriching and I suppose it's kind of shaped who I am as a person to kind of learn these languages and, it, you know, to realise that actually whatever language you're speaking, the human experience is really similar, I suppose, in a way, if you're chatting to a teacher in Spanish or a teacher in French, actually, you know, teachers are teachers and schools are schools and, you know, there's a lot more that we have in common that's different, I think. What's your vision of an educated person? Oh, God, that's a tricky one. Um, I don't know if you're educated, are you wise? I don't know. I can't, my, my dad kind of pops into my head because dad left uh, school when he was 14 and he's one of the wisest people I know and smartest people I know, but he doesn't have the kind of formal education of school and and university um so I think you know when I think of him I think about how he's still really curious and open to ideas at 83 uh, so I think that's a wise person and you know I think that curiosity is really important as well so I think it's not just about your degrees or your diplomas I think it's about being open and, and curious and engaging with new ideas whatever your age or wherever you're at in life who or what inspires you um, I think working with policymakers and with teachers, students across Europe, I suppose that's what inspires me. There's so many people out there trying to improve education, making it more inclusive, more engaging to this, you know, changing complex world we're living in. So I suppose that's what inspires me. And, you know, we don't run an education system. I'm not in the classroom every day, but if somehow I can help connect all of these people, I feel it's my job done in a way. I think I'm in the commission, we, we connect. Um, and if we can connect all these people who are trying to make a difference, I think it's um, where we add value. So yeah, I think it's working with the with the inspirational teachers. The you know I've just run a, a series of workshops on sustainability education with e-twinning teachers. And it's phenomenal. You know, you have these teachers turning up after a really tough day and they, you know, you've you've 50 teachers turn up to a workshop to share what they're doing on environmental projects, on climate change education and it's just, um, yeah, it's remarkable. I think they're my happiest moments in my job is when I'm, I'm hanging out with teachers like that, learning from them and, and seeing them connect as a, you know, and learning from their peers as well. And when you talk about those kind of connections, I wonder, could you say just a little bit about both what you mentioned there, e-twinning and Erasmus, in terms of teachers or students and schools who are not aware of them and aware of, you know, how they can be used to connect people across Europe. How, how, how would you... Um, suggest maybe someone might get involved in one or the other? Sure. Um, so Erasmus is, is the big funding program in education. It's um, very much known for its exchanges. So in normal times, we would be, you know, I'm sure you all, or maybe you, you took part on an Erasmus exchange. So um, that's what Erasmus is best known as. But of course, it's more than that. We fund a lot of projects and programs through Erasmus as well. So eTwinning is one of the things we fund. So eTwinning being a, a network of, of teachers across Europe and with neighboring countries as well. So an eTwinning teacher can start a project. They can reach out. They can connect with different schools and classrooms. eTwinning also provides a lot of professional development opportunities. You'd have eTwinning learning events. You'd have webinars um, in times when you can travel. There'd be conferences and events as well. So 
so it really is a kind of a learning community so you can have those kind of classroom to classroom projects but it's it's more than that and you have these kind of special interest groups so i i'm involved at the moment with the group that look at environment and, and sustainability issues as well a very dynamic um, group of e-twinners there so so that's e-twinning funded through erasmus erasmus also has different um forms of of grants of you know i i think for the irish teachers lergus is the protocol there you know lergus would be you know administering the erasmus program for ireland and you know the staff there are extremely helpful they often run webinars helping um you know kind of demystify this program for the schools i think that's important as well uh, we've simplified ways for schools to apply for erasmus uh, funding as well because of course you know, schools are extremely busy and time pressed. Um, you know, a university might have a small team that look after funding, but schools don't. So we're really trying to make the Erasmus program more accessible to schools as well. So I'd really point the teachers in Ireland towards Lergas as well, um, who can help you further. But, you know, there's tremendous opportunities there. And it's it's about the staff and student exchange, but it's, it's much more than that as well. And the final question, Deirdre, have you a favourite writer, book or blog about education? I think it would probably have to be Neil Selwyn. Um, I think I'm a, a bit of a bit of a fan girl. Yeah. Um, before we did our course in Edinburgh, the only required reading was his book, Distrusting Educational Technology. We all had to read it before we started the course. And what I like about Neil is that he gets you to kind of constantly question, you know, what do we mean by technology use or what do we mean by technology enhancing learning? And he reminds us that there's an industry as well. Um, and, you know, we should be always kind of constantly questioning, you know, claims around technology use as well. So I find he's really influenced my own work, both as, as a student and, and also as a policymaker, too. Um, I, I love the way he writes as well. So, yeah, no, I, I'd really recommend his books. Definitely, and his research articles too. I'm definitely going to look them up because I hadn't yeah. come across them before. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, he's a UK academic based in Australia now in Monash University. And that recommendation of the writings of Neil Selwyn came from Deirdre Hudson, who is proudly flying the flag for Dublin, specifically Merino and education at the European Commission in Brussels. I want to thank Deirdre for her time in being interviewed for the podcast. You can listen back to this episode or to over 400 previous episodes by going to my website seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on Twitter where I use the handle at InsideEd. Please write to me with suggestions or feedback to InsideEducationPodcast at yahoo.com. My book, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, was published by Routledge and is available from all good libraries. The audio version, narrated by me, is available from Audible and other audiobook platforms. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney saying goodbye. Thank you for listening.